Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the 22nd edition of the MBT Fireside Chat. Great to see a superb a number of people in the room today, a lot of people, uh, some new people, so nice to see you guys. Um, Tom, obviously, good afternoon. It's full house today. Got a lot of questions, so I want to get going straight away. Um, it does feel like uh, it's a classroom, so I'm going to give you a first question from the MBT forum, Tom, and it is, since this PMR is a schoolhouse... Is there a real world which we are training for? I would say yes to that. You know, it depends on the metaphors that you want to use and how we how we describe uh, this larger consciousness system. But given the metaphor of the schoolhouse, then I would say that yes, uh, there is a real world which is the larger consciousness system. So we are a piece of consciousness. We exist and grow and evolve within this larger consciousness system. And our uh, virtual reality is just a tool to help us accomplish that. So for us, the real world is the is just the larger system of consciousness. Right, that makes uh, straightforward sense. Okay, moving on to something a little bit more complicated, Tom. Um, it's again from a, a forum user, and they say they would really appreciate it if I could ask Tom the following question. They give me some facts, which I'm going to read out. Your soul is your pure consciousness. Your soul is also what keeps your body alive, and the soul of dead people leave the dead avatar and move or incarnate into another avatar. When Tom performs his OBEs or out-of-body experiences of non-physical reality, this person seems to understand that his consciousness is traveling to those non-physical realities while his body stays in the same place. But surely his body is still alive when visiting those non-physical realities, so it means that his soul never left the body, otherwise he was supposedly dead. So my question, <laughs> roundabout way, is how come Tom's soul or consciousness can visit non-physical realities outside of our PMR when it never leaves his physical body in the PMR. Okay, well, the problem that creates that question is a misunderstanding. The, uh, the soul or the consciousness does not live in the body. It is not what keeps the body alive. So starting off with those two um, misunderstandings, then that creates the problem that creates the question. Um, the avatar, the body, is just a virtual body. It's like the elf in the World of Warcraft. When you, the player, the consciousness of that elf, play World of Warcraft, you would not say that you give life to the elf. You don't. You give choice to the elf. You make choices. You make the decisions. Without you, the consciousness, the elf just stands there and doesn't do anything, takes no action. But you don't give the, the, the elf life. The, the elf's life is, is really just something that's computed by the server that's serving that particular game. The elf really isn't alive. It's just an image. It's just something that we can see. Okay, that's an avatar, and that's what your body is. Your body's the avatar. So the, the consciousness or soul does not live in the body. It does not keep the body alive. It's basically logged into a multiplayer virtual reality game, and your body is the avatar computed in the big computer. So then there really is no mystery. You are consciousness. You can focus your, your intent to some other data stream. You can focus your intent away from the virtual reality game that we're in called physical matter reality 
to some other reality frame and tap into that data stream. And then you're integrated into that reality frame. So it's not a matter of leaving the body to go someplace. And if you left the body, the body would die. All of that's based on a misconception. So once you understand that you are consciousness, the body is computed, is an avatar, and that consciousness can travel around within the larger consciousness system through intent by intending to connect the various data streams, then all of the conflict disappears. Okay. Thanks very much, Tom. Um, concerning this, this, this thing about PMR death, um, you know, and, and, and surviving it, obviously we've talked to, to Mike and April who are doing the Path Afterlife series in which you feature, and uh, they're hoping to have the third part out of that in, in, in June. So my next question is actually from someone who's here in the room, Foad, who's uh, joining us this afternoon from Hamburg in Germany. And it is uh, regarding... Um, surviving or the, the event of PMR death. There are multiple parts to it. So I'm going to ask you them, Tom, one at a time, um, and uh, we'll take it from there. So the first part of the question is, can you accompany someone in the moment of PMR death? But that also goes hand in hand with, can you personally guide someone at the moment of PMR death? Uh, yes. And you can do that from, from more than just one reality frame. If you are in the, PMR reality frame, the physical world, and you are with someone uh, as they are nearing death, you can um, connect with them and basically uh, go along with experience their experience, if you will, uh, in the non-physical. You just have to attach to a different data stream. Okay, so that's possible that you can kind of join them in, in uh, you know, share their experience of, through the transition. Also, you can connect with them and share that transition if you're doing that from the non-physical. Now, this gets a little strange by what we mean by words, okay? When, when your body is in the physical, and I say you can go with them, I don't mean your physical body goes with them. Of course, I mean that your consciousness, your awareness goes with them. And because your consciousness is non-physical, then really you are being with them in the non-physical because once they're dead, they're no longer in the physical. So you, to be with them means to be in the non-physical. But you can do that, is what I'm saying, with a physical body. Or you could do that from the non-physical side. You don't have to have a physical body to do that. So some other being who does not have a physical body here can also meet and connect with that individual and... Um, uh, interact with them too, for that matter. So um, it can be done either, either way. Yes, it's just, you know, that transition is not that different from the transition you make when you go from, you know, being a part of this physical reality, virtual reality, and say being out of body, being in some other reality frame. So that death transition is not all that dissimilar from that. It's a matter of, you know, of course, when you do it purposely, you let go of the data stream here and move on to a different data stream. When your avatar dies, the letting go is a fact. It's, it's accomplished. Your avatar is no longer in the game, and you essentially become aware of another data stream, and then that's the reality that you're in. But they're not all that dissimilar. Okay, so when someone 
does pass when leaves this this PMR death, how do they know that they've reached a level of of staying conscious or does the knowledge include a knowledge of who or what they were in the PMR? Um, it does for a very short time. As you make the transition, you're very much aware of, of who you were in that past lifetime because that past lifetime's only been over, say, for you know a few seconds or a few minutes. So you still are very much aware of that. And that still is your center of your self-awareness, I would say. You still see yourself as that person. But as you, you know, the longer you are in that state and the more time that goes by, your connection with the with that past physical life, the just past physical life starts to fade. And I often say fades like a dream. It's the same sort of thing. When you wake up from a dream, instantly you remember all the details of the dream. 20 seconds later, not quite so much. You know, a minute after that, it's a little foggy. Five minutes later, just the bare outline of the dream. And a couple hours later, it's like, did I have a dream? You know, what was that about? You know, it just kind of disappears. Well, this does the same way. Immediately, you're very much aware um, that you are the same person that you were when you were incarnated before. But very quickly, that disappears. Now, when you're making that transition away from identifying yourself with the avatar that you have just left, you are at the same time making a transition back to the individuated unit of consciousness. Okay, now you are a free will awareness unit that is uh, uh, immersed in the virtual reality game with your avatar. Well, when that avatar dies, then you no longer are immersed solely with that avatar and you begin to transition, not only away from seeing the world through that avatar's eyes, but you begin to make the transition back to being a part of the individuated unit of consciousness, which is your source, your parent, if you will. Well, awareness unit is a is a piece of that of that uh, larger of that uh, individuated unit of consciousness. Okay, so you make that transition. So there's two transitions going on: away from the previous incarnation and toward uh, being uh, reintegrated with your individuated unit of consciousness. So now, as you go on through the transition process, and you decide that you would like to uh, get back in the game, you'd like to have more experience at uh, You'd like to learn some things, grow up, get rid of some fear. That the being, the awareness that's going through that process, then that's making those decisions. Okay, I'd like to have this kind of an incarnation. I'd like to work on that kind of problem. Now that's your I U O C, your individuated unit of consciousness talking. You, as a part of that individuated consciousness, or you, as a as an awareness of that individuated unit of consciousness. Okay, is is the entity making that decision? It's not you as the past avatar. It's not that you, Joe Jones, are now talking about you know another incarnation. It's you as the as Joe Jones's individuated unit of consciousness, not as Joe Jones. But uh, the Joe Jones has kind of faded away. That's the dream. Now you, as an individuated unit of consciousness. You have a bigger picture. You understand you need to evolve. You understand you have certain issues. You would like to uh, 
uh, you know, get back in the game. So all the prejudices and problems and fears, whatever, of Joe Jones, which is the avatar that, that just went away, they kind of fade. And now you see things from the bigger picture of the individuated unit of consciousness. So that's kind of the transitions that are going on. Then you make your choices, and mostly you're going to choose to get back in that game or go to another game. But otherwise, your choice is to play no game at all. Basically, just kind of sit out. And you can do that, too. But generally, that becomes kind of boring. And you kind of get the feeling that you're no longer making progress. You're just kind of hanging out and wasting your time. And then's when you decide you really need to get back into one of those fast-track, advanced evolution trainers that we call physical reality. So even though you may be one of those persons that say, I'm never going back, you know, I don't like this place. That's you as the avatar. That's not you as the individuated unit of, of consciousness. So um, you, uh, as a free will awareness unit, identify solely with that avatar. That is your total identity because you're completely immersed with it. But uh, after the avatar dies, you become a, your point of view becomes the point of view of the individuated unit of consciousness. And you're not, uh, you don't have nearly such a small picture anymore. Right. Now, that doesn't mean you know everything. It's not true that when you, when you, uh, you know, leave your avatar and go back to the, to the uh, individuated unit of consciousness that suddenly you're, you're all wise and all knowing and all the secrets of the universe are clear to you. You're still the same kind of entity you see, that you were before, you still have fear, you still have ego, you still have these other issues you're trying to deal with. It doesn't, death doesn't make you perfect, and it doesn't give you huge insights, but it does give you a different perspective. Okay. Um, Tom, the other part of that question is, and I think a lot of people are going to wonder about this, I know we've talked about living gracefully with uncertainty, but is there any way of knowing that our consciousness will survive, will stay, remain conscious after the end of this PMR? Well, you know, there's almost nothing that, that, that is certain, right? I've talked about this before. We do have to live with uncertainty. You can't be certain who your parents are. You can't be certain, you know, uh, right. of almost anything. There's always uncertainty. Babies get mixed up in hospitals, you know, records get uh, changed, uh, mistakes are made. There's very little that you can ever be certain of. So we just live with uncertainty. But what you can do to minimize that uncertainty is visit other reality frames. Realize that you aren't just a physical being, that you are consciousness and that this reality, this physical reality is just one reality frame in which you can interact in, see? And then that kind of lets you know that this physical reality isn't it. There's other reality frames and that you as consciousness are viable in those other reality frames. So then you know that, well, if I don't, if I can't come back to this reality frame, well, I still have all those other reality frames that I can play in. And, you know, that's, uh, that's good. And then you realize, well, what you just said is that you don't die. You continue to go on. And whether or not your avatar dies or not is really not relevant to you, the consciousness, as far as staying alive. 
you know, when your elf dies in World of Warcraft, you know, it's just not that big a deal. You you deal with that and you go getting back out of the graveyard or you go get another avatar or whatever. So it's the same there. So the only thing that can give you some measure of confidence, again, there's never certainty, but a measure of confidence is to experience, to become uh, uh, comfortable leaving this physical reality and and in exploring other realities. And once you have that experience base, then this idea of death, of consciousness with the avatar just disappears because you know that's not that's not you know that's not true because you are more than you know your connection with the avatar. Okay. The next the next part of that is from a uh, forum member Zach, and it's the other end. It's not the end of the PMR. It's coming into this PMR. Um, he says, "Do we start each PMR experience with a clean slate, as far as fear or ego are concerned, or is it possible to carry fear with you at a being level between PMR incarnations?" He goes on to say that he's had uh, some issues that he's been dealing with in this lifetime. Doesn't know the root cause, but the possibility is he can see either an experience that occurred at a very young age in this lifetime or maybe a deeply traumatic experience that happened during a previous lifetime that he hasn't yet dealt with. Okay, yes, uh, you do bring fear, ego, and uh, well, at least we can say the, the uh, propensity you know, to express fear and ego. You bring that with you. Uh, you don't come with a clean slate in that, in that respect. You come with a clean slate in terms of your intellectual knowledge base. You start in this, as a free will awareness unit with nothing in your intellectual database. And everything that gets into that intellect gets in there basically through your learning uh, uh, as, uh, as, as that avatar. But you are in the process of evolving, which means you have a certain amount of fear that you're trying to overcome certain amount of entropy that you're trying to reduce. And that amount of fear and entropy represents the fear and entropy that's fundamental to your individuated unit of consciousness. Your individuated unit of consciousness is trying to evolve and you getting into the simulator is one of its major strategies for its evolution. So when you then reincarnate into another avatar, you come with the quality that means the love and the fear and all the rest of the things that define that individual unit of consciousness you come into that new experience with that new avatar with that fundamental core quality to your being now you get to express it in wholly new ways with your new avatar how you express that fear how that fear manifests in your life, what you wrap it around is up to your own experience. And yes, if you had some sort of fear that was very prominent, you know, it may express itself in ways that you can't understand. You know, you don't have any reason that you should have that fear. Well, you probably just came in with it. It probably is representative of the level of quality, uh, you know, that you came in with. So it becomes a challenge for you to get rid of it. Then you won't have to come in with it again next time. You see, so it's it's something to uh, a challenge to deal with rather than to sweep under the rug. But yes, that is true. You can come in with fundamental fears, but generally 
they're not fears of very, of some very specific thing. It's not that you necessarily come in with a fear of spiders, but you come in with a fear that is easily or naturally, I should say, that you can wrap that around the form of a spider or spiders or something like that is something that you can attach that fear to. Now, it's possible if you had some traumatic event in a past life that had to do with a spider, you may bring that actual fear itself in. But that's not typically the way it is. Typically, you bring in a fear and then you find something that resonates with that fear to attach it to in this in each incarnation. And that may or may not be the same thing from lifetime to lifetime. Sometimes it's very helpful for, for therapists to, um, what do we do, uh, what do we call that, uh, where they, they take a person and, uh, and move them backwards through time to a past life, okay, regression, right, past life regression. A lot of therapists use that and they find it a very effective tool. It does not necessarily mean that because you're afraid of spiders now and you don't know where that came from, that it was, you know, you got bitten by a big spider sometime in a past life and it killed you or did something, made you horribly sick, and now that's why you're afraid of spiders. But to name that, often if you have a fear, just naming it will put it into perspective. Just giving it a cause will have it a perspective. If you're just terrified of spiders and don't know why, then just the thought, just looking at a spider on a, in a book frightens you. It makes you want to close the book. Once somebody tells you that that fear of spiders has to do with the past life, now you've given it a cause. Now you've got a, a little pigeonhole where you can place that fear, and now that gives you some courage to do something about it. Oh, that's it. It's just some experience I had in some other lifetime. Oh, well, I can deal with that. As long as it's unknown, the unknown is much harder to deal with. So often the past life regression and attaching some sort of fear to a past life is just good therapy. Whether it actually is a fact or not isn't really important. If it's good therapy, it works, then it's a good, you know, it's good therapy. So we use that. Um, sometimes it's just a handy way to give a person a way to get a handle or some perspective on a fear. So everything that you get as a past life under regression or under your own steam, if you're just uh, you know, going to uh, do past lives on your own and touching into the data stream, you often will get things, will see things that are helpful to you helpful to your growth process in this reality frame. Just like when you have dreams, you often will have dreams that are helpful to you in this reality, helpful to your process here, okay? So it works the same way. You doing a past life regression can be given information to help you here. The system's trying to help you and it will feed information to you that's helpful any way it can, through a dream, through a past life research, uh, through uh, somebody who maybe is uh, uh, you know, connecting to a past life, like a medium. The information is often 
presented in a way, created in a way that it's useful to you here. So again, learn to live with uncertainty. So if you have a past life uh, experience and you get certain information, don't necessarily take that to be fact. Take that as information. How can I use that? How can I how can I apply that to my life? Where does that you know fill in things for me and give me better perspective on something? Think of it as being useful. Don't think of it. Is it true or not? That's the wrong question. It doesn't really matter. Is it useful to you or not? That matters. Our obsession with is it true or not is an obsession with should I believe it or not? And you shouldn't believe it or disbelieve it either one. Belief is the problem. But we're driven to either believe or disbelieve because we are frightened by uncertainty. So that's, you know, I, I don't mean to uh, say anything negative about people who do these regressions or whatever. I'm just saying that it is what it is and its usefulness to you is what's important. Getting too wrapped up around the axle about how true it is, is mostly just ego. Look at it from its end of how valuable is it. That's what's important. The truth of it or not is not nearly so important. Now, if what you're trying to do is convince yourself that it's real, therefore you want information that you can go back and check the historical record to see if somebody named, you know, Sally Smith actually did, you know, do something that you, you know, is one of your ancestors or something, and you just got this in a regression or you got it uh, just through exploring uh, past lives and you want to check it out. Well, in that case, what you will have been given is something that is something you can check out. It doesn't necessarily mean still that it was true or that was you. It just means you're being given information that you can check out because that will help you have a better perspective. So you see, we almost never have certainty about anything. You have to learn to let certainty go, live gracefully with uncertainty and look for the value in things, not for should I believe it or should I not? <laughs> belief shouldn't even be part of the question. Let the belief go. I've done a couple of past life regressions and they were fascinating things. But uh, like you say, Tom, I'm not sure what the value to it of, of, of it was to me at the time. But since, you know, reading MBT and, and, and talking to you more, I do see that the, the, the value there was to it. But obviously, yeah, just the metaphors. Just do you see a bridge? Is the bridge getting bigger on your way back and stuff? Yeah, it's just how they're interpreting the data. So, um, um, okay, the, the next question um, TJ, do you want to do you want to ask your question, or would you like me to ask it? Uh, you know, I don't have it up in front of me. You can go ahead and read it. Okay. All right. Well, um, TJ, I'm going to I'm going to read out what you have here. Yeah. Uh, TJ says, since his trip to TMI last August to see you, uh, he's been somewhat obsessed with the concept of growing up at the being level. He left with the overwhelming message that he needed to stop trying to go down the rabbit hole, but to get to work on growing up in his own daily lifestyle. Right when he made that. Uh, his intention, he was flooded by a whole general material to study that seemed to be specifically tailored to exactly what he had in mind. Uh, this led him to studying material by Napoleon Hill and the whole self-help industry that sprung up in the wake of his philosophy. 
the concept of being more self-aware, taking on conscious control of your subconscious through patterns, um, has been around for anyone to see for, since the early 1900s. But such a small percentage of people seem to do participate throughout the years. However, those who do follow those philosophies of self-improvement tend to be overwhelmingly successful. Since getting involved himself, he has noted a substantial increase in the quality of conscious, especially over the past few months. So can you explain from an MBT perspective how making the decision to work on the self can cause the process of growing up at the being level to really accelerate? And how the more enthusiasm you add to the mix, the more powerful the effect. In addition to that, Ingeborg says, if you do pop out of a reality frame, does this frame cease to exist? <laughs> Um, okay, so why is it when uh, you you uh, focus your intent on growing up, on uh, improving the quality of your consciousness, suddenly things start to fall into place to encourage the success of that? Well, two reasons. One, intent is a very powerful thing. Your intent tends to modify future probability. Your intent tends to feed things that uh, you know, feed things to you that satisfy that intent. So that's the, you know, that's one thing. So when you have an intention to grow up, suddenly you become aware of the growing up you need to do, and you become aware of other sources that uh, will help you uh, do that, will help you grow up. Whereas when you didn't have an intention on that, those other sources were always there. You just didn't notice them. And if one of them went by, you looked at it and say, yeah, 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 that's interesting. And then you go on and do something else. You say you wouldn't be connected to it when you're, so your intention really changes your reality. What you see in your reality, what's important to you in your reality, uh, what you connect with and what you blow off, you know, your, your intent and your attitude modify your interaction with your reality. You can say it modifies your reality, and in fact, it, it does do that. It brings new things into your focus, into your attention that you otherwise would never have seen. So it's not that those, again, that those new things were never there. You just never paid any attention to them. So that's one thing. The second thing is, like we already said just a little while ago, the system wants to help you grow up. So as it sees you making an effort to grow up, it does everything it can to feed that intent to help you you know find some success to help you uh you know to motivate you you get nudges here and there and uh that we call synchronicity things just happen oh here i wanted to grow up and then i just happened to you know walk into somebody's house and here's a big book you know sitting in front of me on how to grow up you know wow how synchronous is that so these things just happen so the system tends to want to nudge you because you are saying i'm ready you know i want to i want to do this so it, it helps you out so that's why that that works and that's why intent is so important now your intent gets initiated by your intellect it's your intellect that came to that that meeting we we were together uh in uh, at tmi for a while and and you came to the your intellect came to the um turning point, I guess, that said, instead of trying to have all these marvelous experiences, as you termed going down the rabbit hole, I need to just work on me. You know, 
I just, right. I just needed to get me straight, my quality of consciousness. Well, that was an epiphany. That was a, that was a big change. And once you made that change, then everything tended to feed that change. So it starts with the intellect. That was an intellectual observation, but that intellectual observation says, all right, I'm ready for this. I want to do this. And when you do that, things tend to fall into place. So the intellect is often the leader. It provides direction, but you have to get the material. You have to absorb it at the being level. So the intellect leads, but the intellect isn't the absorber. You know, it's not the thing that makes the difference, but it can lead you in the right direction. But then you, you, the consciousness have to absorb it at the being level into, into you, the understanding of it. Otherwise, it's one of those things you look at and say, oh, that's interesting, and then brush off. You see, that's not absorbing it. And even if you say, oh, that's interesting, I'll read the whole book, and you read the whole book and then say, that's nice, and move on, it still hasn't gotten into your being level. So, you know, it's not that the intellect isn't, you know, can't take the job over the job of the being level. That's bringing it into you, into your core as a being. Okay, and now we had a question from Ingeborg, who said, if you leave this reality, does the one you leave disappear? Well, it disappears for you. <laughs> in other words, it's no longer in your data stream. Um, it doesn't mean that it disappears for other people who are here. And it doesn't disappear for your body, you know, that's lying there or standing there or taking a walk in the park or wherever it is you left your body or whatever you left your body doing, you know, that reality is still there for that body. So if you're taking a walk in the park while your mind is elsewhere in another reality frame and you step in a big puddle, you will suddenly find that your attention is back here, you know, on your wet foot. So uh, yes, you, you, it just, it, you lose the data stream, but uh, the reality ceases to exist just for you because it's no longer in your data stream. And you can parallel process to where you're out in other reality frames, let's say 95%, and there's 5% of you that's still aware here. So there's still 5% of you that listens and knows that, okay, uh, the children just came home from school. I heard the door slam. Uh, there's this going on. There's somebody at the door. Uh, you know, the telephone's ringing. You, you are aware of all those things. And you may say, oh, kids are home. I'm going to have to get up and go downstairs. Or... You may say, oh, it was just a mailman. You know, I'll, I'll pick that mail up later and go back to what you're doing. So you can be parallel processing. So you're 5% here, say 95% there, or 50-50. You can make that however you like, however much of the data stream you want to you wanna accept and how much of it do you throw away. And do you accept it on conditionals? Well, I'm just going to ignore that data stream until unless I hear somebody holler fire. And if I hear that, then I'm going to pay attention and see what's going on. So now you set a conditional for what is going to grab your attention and pull you, you know, pull you back. So those are the, uh, you know, that's, that's the perspective there is it's just a data stream switch. You're not really affecting anybody else's reality. You're just affecting your, your own. The only thing that affects other people's reality is if you come back a different person, then your interaction with others will affect their reality as well. 
Good, Tom. I hope uh, TJ got the answer he was hoping to hear there. Um, I know that a few people have said that, you know, this was a very important, mind-blowing process, so it's good to hear your views on it. Um, TJ went on to say the second part of what he had to say there was that over the past couple of months, he feels that he's reached the point in his journey where he needs to make the switch from being a consumer to being a producer of this conscious material than to help people that he knows or anyone else who wants to pay attention. At the moment, he's working on a piece of work or content that is aimed at helping people achieve balance from the physical, mental, and spiritual perspectives. So could you give us some advice on how to walk the fine line between attracting people to the topic of balancing and maturing the being with interesting knowledge about how everything works from an MBT perspective without overloading them with any information to the point where they tune out? And Or do you have any other advice on how to make the switch from being a student to being a teacher? Sure. That's a natural process. Okay. Uh, you, you grow up to the point that you feel like you understand enough that you could be helpful to other people. At that point, since growing up means you're working toward being helpful to other people, it's a natural process then to want to teach and want to help those other people. You know, it just follows, one follows the other. There's two things that are significant here. One is you learn an awful lot about a subject when you teach it. So when you start teaching other people, you'll find out you're going to learn a tremendous amount about that same subject. Okay, you've learned enough already that you think you can help other people learn, but in helping them, you also will help yourself. You, you don't really understand anything very well, I think, until you've taught it. You know, that really solidifies because now it's not that fuzzy feeling that you get, but you have to articulate that fuzzy feeling in a very specific way to specific people that makes you get it in a lot you know a lot firmer grasp of it so that's that's one thing and you will always be both you will always be a teacher and you'll always be a student you will learn from your students when you're a teacher and if as a student you learn something valuable then indeed you should try to pass it on when that opportunity comes so being a student and a teacher is what we all are all the time. Uh, the more you learn, the more you grow up, then the larger percentage of that is spent as the, as the teacher. You, you, you do more teaching. When you're in the beginning parts of that and you haven't really grasped anything really firmly enough yet to be the teacher, then you're mostly the student. And you, you teach by you know, just interacting with other people. People that we interact with are, are our teachers because they require us to interact with them without ego and with compassion. So we're, we're always both of those things. Now, how do you communicate things to people? You can tell people too little. Don't give them enough to process. You can tell people too much. Give them more to process than they have the ability to process. Neither one of those is on the road to good communications. So you have to know kind of what to say and what not to say to which people, because some people you can say, you know, more and other people you must say less and to other people yet you can say a lot, but you have to put it in the right context because you're dealing with people who have fear, who have ego and who have beliefs. And if you write off trash their beliefs, 
they're just going to write you off as somebody that doesn't understand and go away. They're not going to listen to you. So even though you're aware that they have these beliefs, and though you're aware that these beliefs um, constrain them and are causing them difficulties, it wouldn't be a good idea just to say, you know, all that stuff you believe, it's just a bunch of crap. You know, you need to let that go, you know, grow up and, and let that stuff go. That's not on your path to success by communicating to these people. You have to communicate in such a way that you give them new information without necessarily um, running counter to their beliefs. So you may be limited in what you can give to them because they're limited in what they can process. But you give them enough information and enough enticement and enough stuff that they can work with that they can see the results. You know, it shouldn't just be theoretical. When you, when you teach people, you must be teaching them something that's practical, something they can use, something that will change their life, something that's functional for them. Give them something that they can see the results of. Give them something that works for them and makes their life better and encourage them to, to stay with it till they see that their life is better. And then slowly they will learn that they can let go of the belief, that the belief is unnecessary. But you don't start by explaining to them why where they are is not the good place to be. You never start with your student. And the first thing you tell them is that they are wrong and you are right and they need to listen to you. That's just ego and you won't have any students learn anything if you have that, that approach. So you have to approach everybody differently. And if you give people more than they can process, in this case, you give them things that they can't process because it runs counter to their beliefs, it runs counter to their understanding, then you shouldn't give them that information, even if you think that's really what they need to know. You have to approach it through some other avenue where they can process the information until they grow to the point that they can let go of that belief on their own. In other words, they can outgrow the belief rather than you explaining to them that it is a belief and that they need to let go of it, you see? So you, you don't lead from the front, you lead from the rear. You provide, you provide the environment and the encouragement for them to grow in the ways they can grow and you let them then do the growing and get rid of the things they have to get rid of. So it's, it's a good example and encouragement and understanding where your student is, where they're coming from, what is their mind frame, what is their understanding, which is also what are their fears, what are their beliefs, what is their ego, and you have to do a, a very productive dance around all of those problems and still give them something that they can get hold of and go with and process. And then let them get to the point that they grow out of those things on their own, rather than you try to intellectually uh, give them something that then they intellectually use to, to grow out of. So we never change anybody with a lecture. You know, we have this we have this mistaken idea of people that if we just tell them the way it is, if we just give them the truth, well then they can just go be it. You know, they can they can just do it. That's all you need to do. If you just told people how it was, then everybody would know how it was, and 
everything would be fine. Well, it doesn't work that way. You see, that's starting from an assumption that everybody is rational. And if they just knew the facts, well, they'd just do it right then. You know, there wouldn't be a problem. If they knew the facts that what they thought was a belief was just some belief and was totally non-fundamental, if you just told them the facts, then they'd take those facts and now they'd be over it. It doesn't work like that, you see, because our, our ego, our beliefs and our fears are not rational. Fear is irrational. Ego is irrational. Belief is irrational. All those things you have, regardless of the facts. Facts to the contrary of your beliefs just annoy you. Facts that are along and, and agree with your beliefs just prove that you're correct. You see, and, and if somebody else disagrees with your beliefs, it just means they don't understand. So it's not a matter of giving people the facts and then letting them change themselves now that they have the facts. Facts generally don't change anyone. You have to give people a path that they can take and process and then let them encourage them to process that path. That's how you teach. That's how you learn. So that's what I mean by you, you lead from the rear rather than lead from the front. Instead of here, I know, you know, listen to me, do the way I do, follow me. That's leading from the front. And instead it's, you have to follow yourself. You have to follow your own experience. You know, you have to follow your own heart and what you know is right and wrong. And here's a little information for you to grow on. And if they take that and work with it and grow, then they will change themselves. You see, and if they don't, don't feel like, you've necessarily failed them, they may just not be ready yet. And you don't want to push them harder because that'll probably push them further away from actually growing up, not, not pull them along. You see, because as you, as you push anybody, they automatically instinctively push back. I mean, anything will do that. If you have a pet animal and you push that pet animal, one way you will notice that pet animal will push back. You know, it's not intellectual. It's just when you get pushed, you resist. It's a, it's just a fact of the way we are. So you can't push. You don't just explain. It's not intellectual. You have to be the good example as well as, as understand them enough that you can tell them what they can process. Don't give them facts they can't process. So that's the biggest thing about being a teacher. You have to be aware of your students and what makes them tick and where they are. And until you gain that awareness, you need to tread carefully and lightly. So you almost need to lead at you need to lead everybody with their own personal trail of breadcrumbs. <laughs> yes. They actually have to lead themselves. What you do is just open up a space. You open up a path that they can walk and uh, you encourage them but they have to make the decisions. If they don't make the decisions, then they're not going to learn from it, you see? If they're just doing it because you say, I'm the teacher, I know, and here's what you need to do, and they say, okay, he seems to know, he's the teacher, I'll just do it. Well, they're not learning anything. All they're doing is copying the teacher. They're acting, you see? Well, you can do that. You can go find a guru, and then you can act just like he does. Smile when he smiles, you know, frown when he frowns, laugh when he laughs, uh, you know, listen to all the things he listens to. And you can just 
walk along beside him and do everything he does, but that doesn't gain you anything, you see. You're just mimicking. So there is no value in that. If it's not your decision, if you're not grasping these things and internalizing at the being level, then they're not really all that helpful to you. All they are is, is, is an act. It's a, you look maybe like you're learned and you look like maybe you're a spiritual person, you know, because you do everything a guru does. But if it's all at the intellectual level, then all you are is really a very successful mimic. And it isn't value that you're gaining at the at the at the uh, being level so we don't want to lead people directly because then it's not theirs it's ours we don't want them to be good actors <laughs> we want them to be good people at the being level thank you very much tom tj i hope you're happy with that answer thumbs yeah, up Thanks. Good. Tom, the next question is going to be from Ingeborg, who's in the room. It's a question on archetypal types of entities. Yeah. Well, so you can hear me? Yes. Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. So, uh, again, a, a dream of mine is, all, is also involved in this uh, question. One year ago, by chance, I came across the Michael teachings. A friend of mine gave me my chart. I didn't know about the Michael teachings before and I didn't know the date when my chart should be done. The night it was channeled, I had seven lucid dreams in seven different astral levels. Very rare event, marvelous results, tons of insight. So I started to look a bit into the Michael theory and the seven archetypal types of entity roles, such as king, server, scholar, priest, sage, warrior and artist. And meanwhile, I find this theory useful to discern the kind of energy and information or the data, as you call it, any entity represents. So did you yourself come across comparable archetypal structures and do you find them useful? Um, I've never, uh, you know, I've never, uh, use them like that are there you know, it's a tool let's put it this way these archetypal structures are tools it's not necessarily something that is fundamental it's just a way that we can arrange things in our mind it's a way we can sort things that gives us some perspective some way of dealing with the information some way of uh, of of kind of taking a, a shortcut of assessing what it is we're, we're interacting with and how we're interacting. So it is a tool, uh, not a fundamental thing. You can, you can break say personality types down in lots of different ways. And the ones you just listed, you know, that would be just one way of breaking down individuals. Now the, the things you listed weren't just personality types, but they were more like interaction types. It's the way the person, interacts with you, you know, not just their personality, but it's a, it's kind of an interaction typing, which makes it, uh, it's unique. Uh, of course, there are things like Myers-Briggs and, and three or four other uh, uh, ways of looking at personalities that break people into, you know, a relatively small number of types. Uh, 
I don't know how many they are in Myers-Briggs, but there's probably, you know, a dozen or more different types if you put all the, the letters together in different, in different ways that, uh, that you can have. Well, it's useful in the sense is that once you, it, it makes you aware of how people are interacting and how they're being and how they are processing your information because you understand that there are people who look at things this way and people who look at things that way, rather than not having that understanding. Then when you find somebody that, that looks at things that way, right away, you know, 10 more things about them, you know, things that, you know, other things that they're likely to, you know, to, uh, to have as part of their personality that goes with that type, if you will. So it is a very useful tool. I've not used those, um, well, not intentionally. I suppose after a while, we get good at kind of doing that um, unintentionally. We get good at um, kind of sorting the, it's not really by type, but we get good at dealing with individual personalities and we're doing all that typing and all that sorting without really thinking about it, just out of experience. And just out of uh, you know a lifelong lived paying attention to people, you know you get a lot of that that uh, that information anyway, and uh, it's just helpful if you learn a, a structure or a process to to put it in. It makes it easier to learn. Though I guess after a while you'll probably let that structure go because things will just become more intuitive to you. The, the, the tool is often something you use for a while until you internalize the tool and then you no longer really need to use it with your intellect. You just get that information without having the, the intellect. So it sounds like a perfectly, I'm not familiar with that, with that tool, but it uh, sounds like a perfectly reasonable tool and one in which you could uh, you know, get value out of. That's the whole point with tools, something that works for you. Uh, yes, there's, just because it's a tool doesn't mean it's, and just because it's not fundamental doesn't mean that it isn't useful. It can be extremely useful and, you know, not be fundamental and, uh, and simply just be a tool that we use.